One of the most influential and visionary leaders in the last century um, was Rabbi Rom Yitzchak HaKoyen Cook. And the focus always when discussing Rav Cook is his philosophy rather than his life story, than especially his, his early years, his general life. And therefore, I thought to have a short series on his life, his world, especially the connections that he forged in his early years, which will give a better context of understanding his later life and all that surrounded um, um, his later stages in his life. So this is Yehuda Geber on Jewish History Soundbites. And um, Rav Cook is born in 1865 in a little town called Griba, in today in Latvia. In in those days, the Jews referred to that area, or it was generally referred to that area as Kurland. Kurland was the northeastern province of the Russian Empire. Again, today is Latvia, and Kurland was known for being in its geographical location as the northeastern, northwestern, excuse me, uh, northwestern province of the the Russian Empire, as being closer to Germany, closer to the West, being more open. There's a lot of uh, uh, testimony in the yeshivas about a bacher from Kurland, and he was a little different than the average Litvish, Russian, Polish uh, bacher in the yeshiva. You see that in the memoirs on Tells and Slabatka and others. So he grows up in Kurland. His father was a, a alumnus of the Velazhin Yeshiva, a Talmud Chacham. His mother came from a family of Chabad Hasidim, Kapust Chabad Hasidim, not, not Lubavitch, Kapust Hasidim of Chabad. And interestingly enough, his father being a misnagid from Velazhin and his mother being a, a Kapust Chabad Hasid, he himself would always be somewhat of a mixture, somewhat of a, not specifically defined, he had a bit of Hasidus, a bit of um, a bit of regular mainstream Litvish Valazhin, um, and he had a bit of a lot of other things also. He was a very interesting mixture of, of a, quite a few different influences. In his younger years, he learns in a few places, he also learned by Rebruven Denenberger in, in Dvinsk. In, in those days, Dvinsk had a German name of the town, which was not far from Griba. Um, now it's known as Dvinsk. And and then it was known as Denenberger. Rebruven Denenberger was one of the big Rabbanim of his day, uh, quoted by many um, Rabbanim of the next generation. He gets, Rav Kook gets smicha from the Aruch HaShulchan, um, Rabbi Chil Michal Epstein, the Rav in Navardik, who was one of the G'dayle Hadar, and was also known as a Smicha Geber. He was the one who gave very often Smicha. Um, most, most of the Rabbanim of his day got Smicha from the Archa Shulchan. Um, and then he subsequently learns in the Valajan Yeshiva. He's in the Valajan Rav Kook, learned in Valajan for about a year and a half. Um, he was very, very close with the Nitziv. And interestingly enough, his love for Eretz Yisrael, which is uh, which is his definitely most dominant feature that he's known for, 
was nurtured from early on. He, from a young age, from a young, as a young boy in Griba, he already had a love for Eretz Yisrael. The legend even has it that when he was playing games with his friends, with the little children, the little boys in Griba, they would play a game where they each had satchels on their shoulders and they would be marching off somewhere and he would tell the boys we're traveling to Eretz Yisrael. So whether the legend is true or not, but it definitely reflects a certain belief that um, that from a young age he had this idea that he wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael. And that was further nurtured when he was in Valazhin. Uh, Valazhin played a major role in the early years of Chibas Tzion, of the Lovers of Zion movement. There was a secret society in Valazhin called Neis Tzioyna, which there's a full book written on it by, by, uh, by Klausner. And others have written about it. And the Netziv was involved in the Chibas Tzioyn in the early years. Many of the leading Zionists studied in Valazhin. The founder of the Mizrahi, Rabbi Yitzchak Yaakov Reines, learned in Valazhin. Um, and uh, and uh, by the way, the reason that the Neis Tzioyna society in Valazhin was secret was not because they were scared of the Hanhala of the Valazhin Yeshiva. It's because they were scared of the Tsarist authorities because... These type of secret societies, especially if involved in anything somewhat nationalistic or political, uh, it was illegal. And it was an illegal society, it was illegal to have these gatherings, and therefore it was a secret from the Russian police. Um, in any event, so there was definitely that undercurrent of love for Eretz Yisrael. Definitely was not that political at the time. It was just regular, old-fashioned Yiddish love of Eretz Yisrael, and it was also nurtured during his time in Valazhin. He subsequently marries the daughter of one of the leading Rabbonim in Lithuania, Rebilio David Rabinovich Toimim, who was known by the acronym of his name, the Aderes. And the Aderes came from a huge rabbinical family, um, connections all over Lita to different Rabbonim. He, he had a relative who was, a, who was a famous leader of the Jewish people in the Russian Empire, Leo Akiva Rabinovich, who was later on a Ravin, Ravin, also a journalist in Poltava. He founded from the first, excuse me, um, religious newspapers. Ironically, one of them was named Hamodia, and one of them was named Hapeles. He found Leo Akiva Rabinovich founded both those newspapers, and and uh, when the, in later years, religious newspapers were born in, in Israel, they were named after those original religious newspapers in the Russian Empire. And, and Rebbe Cook, who was related to Rebbe Yoakim Rabinovich, when he was a young Rav, he would actually write articles for Hapeles, for his, his cousin's uh, newspaper. Rebbe Yoakim Rabinovich was originally also part of the Chibas Tzioyin movement, and eventually he became a very... A strong antagonistic opponent of Zionism, of anything related to Zionism. And it's interesting that, that Rev. Cook had that connection there as well. It's also interesting that he wrote for Hapelis. I'm not sure if the current uh, editorial board of, of Hapelis would be excited to know that in the original uh, incarnation of, uh, of the Hapelis newspaper, Rev. Cook was a writer. In any event, um, the Aderes the Rav Cook's father-in-law was, a, again, like I said, a leading Rav in Lita. He, he had a very hard life. He was the Rav in Panavish, and 
he was very devoted to the community and the community did not pay him well, he himself wrote an autobiography, a rare occurrence of a Litvish Rav writing an autobiography um, and describing in, in great detail the incredible detail, sometimes amazing, amazingly detailed descriptions of life in Lita at the time and his hardships and his relationship with other rabbis of the time. Um, for some, it was a little too detailed, and there are definitely uh, censored versions of his autobiography around. Um, and he writes there how he was offered the rabbinical position in Warsaw, um, but did not want to leave Panovich because he was devoted to the poor of the town, and he had taken out loans to support them, and he wanted to pay back those loans. He stayed on in Panovich. He stayed on in Panovich even after he was offered the rabbinical position in Vilkomir, which was also a bigger town, offering him a larger salary. And he stayed devoted to his flock. Eventually, he becomes the Rav in Mir, in the town of Mir. He was there for about seven or eight years um, before he's offered the position of Rav in Yerushalayim. Um, in 1901, he becomes the Rav in Yerushalayim alongside Reb Shmuel Salant. Reb Shmuel Salant had been the long-time rabbi in Yerushalayim, and he was getting older, on in years, and he needed an assistant to run the day-to-day affairs, the Bezdin, and other things in Yerushalayim. So he brings in the Adaris uh, to become the rabbi in Yerushalayim. He moves to Yerushalayim in 1901, and he dies four years later before Reb Shmuel Salant. He had come to replace Reb Shmuel Salant, and Reb Shmuel Salant, who just seemed to live just about forever, he never died. <laughs> he, he lived for a very long. Arichus Yamim. He he was the Rav in Yerushalayim for close to seventy years. Rav Shmuel Salant. So the Adaris um, dies before Rav Shmuel Salant, who brought him in. Um, the Adaris himself had um, certain Zionistic leanings. Not definitely not part of mainstream Zionism, but tremendous Ayhiveris Yisrael, and um, that also may have had an influence on Rav Kook, who was his son-in-law. Um, interestingly enough, when the Raderas dies in Yerushalayim, and a few years later, Shmuel Salant passes on in 1909, and the rabbinical position as Rav Yerushalayim is not filled for 10 years until Rav Kook himself, who was Raderas' son-in-law, fills uh, in Rav Shmuel Salant's place as the Rav in Yerushalayim in 1919. But we're jumping ahead of the story. Um, when, when the Adaris leaves Mir to move to Yerushalayim, the one who takes his place is the one who had recently been appointed to be the Rosh Hashiva of the Yeshiva in the Mir. And now he also takes the Rav position, the rabbinical position, as the Rav of Mir. And that's Rebel Baruch Kamai, the famous Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, who is a father-in-law of Rebbe Yidl Finkel, and he fills the Adaris place as the Rav of the Mir. Now, in the seven, eight years that the Adaris was the Rav in Mir, Rav Kook probably visited him there. Did he ever ha- see the Mir? Did he ever see the Yeshiva? Waiting for some uh, legend to, to uh, connect Rav Kook to the Mir Yeshiva. As far as I know, there aren't any, but there's definitely room to make one up um, if, uh, <laughs> for that. Um, Rav Kook's wife, unfortunately, passes away shortly after he married her, and he marries her cousin, um, who's raised by the Adaris. The Adaris had a twin brother, brother named Rav Tzvi Yehuda, um, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Rabinovich Ta'oyimim, who died young, and the Adaris raised his daughter. So he marries off his 
son-in-law to his niece. Um, so he marries uh, in his second marriage this cousin, and his son from that marriage uh, he names after um, his wife's father, Reb Tzvi Yehuda, and that's Reb Tzvi Yehuda Cook, who um, was his father's right-hand man, who um, stood by his side in, in America's Arab and many other things. He married a Hutner from Warsaw, the granddaughter of um, of the Aisha Shakur of Reb Zundel, Yosef Zundel Hutner, never had children. This Hutner, uh, um, who he married, had previously been engaged to the son of the altar of Slabatka, Ramesha Finkel, and that engagement um, did not work out. It's a different story for another time, but she eventually marries Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, the son of Rav Kuk, um, who, from his, his second marriage. Rav Kuk becomes the Rav in Zemel, a small town in Lita, a small town in Lithuania. Um, at the time that he's, he's the Rav there, he writes uh, one of his earliest farm, a small pamphlet, a small contrast called Chevesh Pe'er, which, is, which he, he writes to encourage people to be machmir on tefillin, and the way they wear their tefillin, to wear it in the right position on their heads and arms, and, and he goes about trying to sell the sefer and travels around Lita to encourage people to wear tefillin in the correct way, and he becomes a bit of a kanoi about this chumrah that he has about tefillin. And there's people who write against him that he's too machmir. And this is an issue. I just read a recent article about this recently, about how in his younger years he was the machmir and the people who went against him were being makel. And later on in life, it seemed to be that the tables were turned. He was considered the makel while other people were being machmir. And interestingly enough, he had always been a bit of a machmir. In Valajan, he'd been considered a machmir. He, he, um, I think he, he wanted to grow his beard, and he was very machmer in his Yerush Shemayim. He always had in front of him a little plaque that said, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Summit. He was a very interesting combination of a Talmud Chacham, of Hasidus, of Kabbalah. And during the time that he was a Rav in his younger years, he, he learns with and becomes very close with Rav Shloyme El Yashiv, the Leshem Shavoy Vachlama, who had a tremendous influence on his Kabbalistic leanings on his Kabbalah life and his learning of Kabbalah. He was very close with Shlomo Yashiv. He learned much with him and he stayed close with the Yashiv family later on in Yerushalayim with the Leshem Shavoy Vachlam of Shlomo Yashiv and his son-in-law, Rav Ramal Yashiv and of course his grandson, Rav Yashiv Shalom Yashiv when he's the Masada Kedushin at Rav Yashiv's wedding. It's not only because he's close with Rav Yashiv's father-in-law, Yubari Levin, which of course he is, but also because he's close with the Yashiv's himself, and uh, he was the Masada Kedushin there by Rabbi Yosef Shalom Yashiv's wedding. He moves on from being the Rav in, in uh, Zemel to become the Rav in a much larger town in Latvia called Boisk. So he's the Rav in Boisk, a larger town, much more responsibilities, and it's, da- it's specifically at this time that he finds the time to do his most productive writing, and a lot of his future ideas and writings and and philosophies are already here in Baisk. He already has the dream to move there to Australia. Already has a lot of his ideas worked out, and it's here where he actually writes it. He was the rabbi in Baisk for ten years, and today there's a plaque in Baisk in Latvia um, that Rav Cook was the the Rav there, and I bring tours in Lithuania and Latvia 
It's not far from Dvinsk, not far from Riga, um, the capital of Latvia. We see Boisk and and uh, and where Rav Cook was the was the Rav. Um, a very interesting connection forged when he's the rabbi in Boisk is that there is a young bacher in Boisk at the time who learns in the Tel's yeshiva, which is not that far away. It's a little bit south into Lithuania. Today we drive right across the border. It's an EU border. It's right through. It's uh, Tel's is in the north of Lithuania, so it's not that far away. We get to see the Tel's yeshiva um, and all the whole all the areas of northern Lithuania. Very interesting to see Kelm and Panevis and all these places. You should uh, you should really try to check it out um, on on a trip. Uh, one of the trips that, uh, that 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 we do we can do together one day. In any event, so. Um, there's a bacher in the town who learns and tells by Reb Shimon Shkup, Reb Lezer Gordon. His name is Reb Chanan Wasserman, and he's the future, obviously, Reb Chanan. Ironically, it's his yard site today. We, we think it's his yard site today. It's hard to be exactly sure. He was killed by Lithuanians at the seventh fort. We know he was taken away around this time, and the assumption is is that it's Yud Aleph Tammuz. It's hard to know uh, for sure um, when exactly he was killed. And, and in this context, I'd like to mention how I, I uh, mentioned on an earlier recording how that, to the best of my knowledge, Rebbe Khanan does not have um, living descendants, and I was incorrect. I subsequently discovered that he does have some living descendants through his son, Rebbe David Wasserman, who survived the war, so that was a mistake. But Rebbe Khanan, as a bacher, lived in Boisk, and he learned in tells. And not every Bacher in Baisk learned and tells, so he was pretty much the star of the town. So one of the privileges that Rebbe Khanan had when he would come home for Bain Hazmanim to Baisk was that he got to learn with the rabbi. He got to learn with the Rav of the town. And he and Rav Kook were very close. They would learn together uh, whenever Rebbe Khanan was home from Tells. And it's a very ironic connection, a very interesting connection, because Rebbe Khanan later on in life was known as a bit of an extremist, a bit of a kanoi um, against Zionism, against religious Zionism. And one very sharp writing of his that's published, he wrote that Zionism is a form of avodah it's a form of idol worship, and religious Zionism is a form of avodah b'shituf. It's it's religion, which is good, but it's combined with avodah which is, in his opinion, uh, not good. And he's writing this and making these statements at the time that the leader of, of religious Zionism was his former Rav and Chavrusa um, in that time in Eretz Yisrael. Um, so that's a very interesting connection. Um, so again, it makes one think that these disagreements were more ideological and not personal. These people knew each other and were close with each other. And they were entitled to have their disagreements um, with each other later on in life. And uh, very often it was not personal, which is an important point to emphasize and, and remember. He, Rav Cook, is after 10 fruitful years in Boisk, where he made a nice salary as the Rav of a big town, he's invited to become the Rav in Yafo and the new settlements nearby Yafo in Israel, in Eretz Yisrael. And it was Palestine, it was still under the Turks. This is in 1904. Um, 
which is his dream. He wants to move to Eretz Yisrael, and despite the fact that it's a lower salary, and Boisk wants him to stay, he's about 40 years old, and he decides he's going to go. He's leaving everything behind. He's moving to Eretz Yisrael. That was a major move, and he comes to Yafo, and he becomes the Yafo Rav. And um, he gets very involved in Jewish life in Yafo and the surroundings. He gets very involved in the mitzvah satulius ba'aretz, the Shemitah um, dispute about whether to rely on the Heter Mechir or not. He writes a sefer about the mitzvahs that are specifically related to the land of Israel. And he is very becomes very involved in Jewish life in Eretz Yisrael as the Yafo Rav. One of his life works uh, throughout his life and remains so throughout his life um, and it's not as well known as his uh, as his regular uh, um, works, was that he was very involved in building and supporting yeshivas. And he was very involved in Jewish education. His life's work eventually in Yerushalayim was to build the Merkaz Harav Yeshiva, which is a story in itself for a later part of the series. But um, throughout his life, in fact, in 1924, he was part of one of the earliest delegations of Russia yeshiva of leaders to go to America to raise money for the yeshiva world. Um, later became a dominant feature of interwar Jewish life was Russia yeshiva going to the United States to raise money for their yeshivas. Rav Kook was part of pretty much the first delegation. Him and Rav Moshe Epstein, the Rosh yeshiva in Slabotka and in Hebron, and Rav Ram Berkana Shapiro, the Kovnerov, later known as the Dvarav Ram, they go to the United States to fundraise for the yeshivas in a long trip in 1924. Of Cook even met uh, the president, Calvin Coolidge. And when he was in New York, he received, uh, excuse me, in America, in Washington, he received the key to the city in New York when he was there. And he helps to fundraise for the Litvashi yeshiva world. So when he's in Yafo, there was a fairly new yeshiva called Sharei Torah uh, that had been founded uh, previously um, several years earlier, a yeshiva for Yafo, for the new settlements, the Yishuv HaChadash, the new settlements um, in the Yafo area. And one of the rabbeim there um, that Rav Cook uh, was very close with was a fellow by the name of Rav Shlema Zalman Shach, who was a dayan also on Rav Cook's Bezdin in Yafo. And Rav Cook uh, upgrades the Sharei Torah yeshiva. He gets very involved in it. He adds classes to it. He adds another yeshiva to that building, um, and it becomes a center of Tyra life in Yafo at the time. And interestingly enough, a, another Valazhaner, a close Talmud of the Netziv, who was a friend of Rav Kook in Valazhin, is also a Rebbe in the Shari Tyra Yeshiva, and he also builds up the Yeshiva together with Rav Kook, and his name was Rav Chaim Svi Rubinstein. Um, he had moved several years earlier to Yerushalayim, um, and, uh, and he was involved with the Shari Tyra Yeshiva, and he moves later on to Yerushalayim, was a dayan on Rabbi Shmuel Salans Bezdin in Yerushalayim. And in 1911, when he's fundraising for, for the, the Torah institutions in Yerushalayim, when he's in Chicago, he eventually settles down in Chicago, where he's one of the founders uh, of what becomes Beis Medrash Latoira, Hebrew Theological College in Chicago, today known as Skokie Yeshiva. And, and he... He um, was a builder of Tyra in Chicago, was a rav there, a tr- tremendous leader of Chaim Svirugenstein, one of the last of the big Valazhaners. And, uh, and his grandson, 
Rav Beryl Wine, may he live and be well. Um, one of my mentors in Jewish history, so his so Rabbi Wine, he founded a yeshiva in Muncie when he was a rav in Muncie um, called Sharei Torah, which still exists, the yeshiva in Muncie. And the Sharei Torah yeshiva, Rabbi Wine, named after his grandfather's Rabbi Chaim Sui Rubenstein and Rav Cook's Sharei Torah yeshiva in Yafo, which had, which had closed down. It was closed down in the late 40s. It, it, it fell apart. Um, for for all kinds of financial reasons and other reasons, and this Shari Torah Yeshiva is actually named for the Shari Torah Yeshiva in Yafo, and and Rav Cook is involved with that at this stage. In 1913, again, this is a year before World War One. He's already the Rav in Yafo for several years. He's officially the Rav in Yafo and the Moshavot, the settlements, the new farming and agricultural settlements in the Afo area, which are, for the most part, pretty secular. And he goes on what's known in Hebrew as the Masa HaMoshavot. He goes on a, a, a several-month journey around all the secular settlements, together with Reb Chaim Zonenfeld, who was in Yerushalayim, who was not from a Valazian background. He was from, from Hungary, Talmud of the Ksav Seifer, and, and Revram Shag, from a totally different background. And, and, uh, and together they go to do Kiruv on the, on the Moshavot, on these settlements, um, with a somewhat limited success, but the fact that the two of them went together and they went and they had this exposure to the settlements and the people saw the great Rabbonim of the Yishuv was uh, a very big step in, uh, in the history of the Yishuv in Eretz Yisrael. In 1914, he's, Rav Cook now finds himself on his way to Switzerland to be a part of the Nagurus Yisrael meeting to try to convince them to be less antagonistic to the Zionist movement, which already coming closer to his more famous positions vis-a-vis the Zionist movement, which I'll discuss at further length in the next episode. But what's important is that he eventually gets stuck there because World War I breaks out that summer. He stays in Switzerland for a bit of time and then becomes, interestingly enough, a rav in England in the Marziki Hadas Shul for the remainder of World War I before he returns to Yafo at the end of World War I. So, so he becomes a rav in England and he has his influence there uh, as well, which is also a, an interesting story. So that is the first part, the somewhat earlier years of Rav Cook. Um, we'll continue, obviously, with the later years of Rav Cook at another opportunity. Um, this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, or to book tours to go around to see these places in Eretz Yisrael and Eastern Europe and hear about these amazing people and places and institutions. You could subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. We also have a WhatsApp group of Jewish History Soundbites um, if you enjoy, give a good rating. Share with your friends and family. You can also follow Jewish History Soundbites on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed. <laughs>